spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. Hello and welcome to the 143rd Annual Subliminal Deception Podcast. Your weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody. I'm joined by pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. I just, uh, really quick off the top, I wanted to congratulate everyone on getting past Omicron. I was actually on my way home today, and the drive-up COVID testing places had absolutely no lines. So it looks like it's pretty much done here. So Really? Okay. Yep. That's, uh, that's great news. It came in fast and hard, uh, and now I've seen there's like another variant that's like Omicron or whatever you call it. So, but I think that's gonna be kind of how it's going to change from here on out. Yeah, I think every once in a while we're just gonna get a new variant, and after a while CNN's just gonna move on and talk about something else. So. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it looks like it's it looks like it's pretty much over. So I think pretty much ninety percent of the people I talk to on a regular basis were either sick with Omicron or sick with something else in the past month and a half, and they probably also had it too. So I had oh, it, I know. So oh yeah, holy shit, it came in uh, fast and hard. It yep. hit a lot of a uh, lot of people I know, but yeah, it seems to be dwindling a little bit. Yeah, it came in like Pepe Le Pew, just <laughs> <laughs> unapologetically. <laughs> uh he's canceled now, but we do not we do not oh, talk yeah. about him. Sorry. Do you drive by a uh testing site on your way home from work? Yeah, there's one about two blocks away from where I live. In an old abandoned uh like strip mall. They have them there. Gotcha. Okay. I wasn't aware of that. I don't even know where the one here would be. I know they're I think they're doing it at the state fairgrounds, but that's pretty far from where I am. They have them kind of like centrally located around the city. So, gotcha. Okay, I got to ask you a question. I don't know who the hell sits in like searches for famous people, what they like and unfollow and follow or whatever. Um, have you heard the news that your quarterback, Kyler Murray, has unfollowed the Arizona Cardinals? I have heard that. They have a little bit of beef going back and forth, but I've also heard that it could be just uh, a little bit of fodder for negotiations. So he might be just trying to get a little more money. What a weird way. What a weird negotiating tactic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, anything you can do to get more money. I mean, he deserves it. He's been really good. A lot of people don't like him right now just because, you know, when his superstar wide receiver went down, he wasn't as good. He's a good quarterback. Everyone doesn't like him now because they say he's too short. So he's not able to run around as much as he used to because defenses have kind of sniffed him out. So of like what he wants to do. But I think he's still good. I think he's got a good career ahead of him. If he can stay healthy. Yeah. The funny thing is uh, Kenny Pickett, right? Mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I'm seeing so many posts. He's like, I'm not going to show my hands at the combine. 
Like he, they're really concerned with the size of his hands. Um, have, oh. you, have you heard this? It's pretty funny. Yeah, there's always some quarterback every year who they make fun of him because his hands are a little too small. You know, they basically want just like how they want NBA players to have longer arms than their height, you know, should allow them to have. They want quarterbacks to have bigger hands than their body should allow. So it's like I think it's like nine inches across is like the minimum they want for a quarterback. That's a big hand. Uh, Yeah, it's a big fucking hand. uh, Okay, speaking of football, before we get in the episode here. Um, plans for the Super Bowl, Phil? I am going to be hanging out with my family, watching the Super Bowl. We always do a party every year, so. Okay. Yeah, I I think my uh, sister, brother-in-law, and nephew are going to come over. I am planning on making meatball sliders. Uh, awesome. I, uh, dude, I saw the recipe. I'm like, man, this sounds fucking fantastic. Oh, yeah. We have a big smorgasbord of... Just all the unhealthy foods that are you, you're going to want to eat. Are, are you going to make something? I I don't know. I'm going to the Phoenix Open that morning, so I'm probably going to stop and pick something up um, on the way. The hell's the Phoenix Open? It's, uh, it's a golf thing. My brother got tickets to it, so it's it's going to okay. be fun. There's a lot of drinking involved. So. <laughs> it wouldn't be Arizona if there wasn't drinking involved. Uh, yep. Okay, final thing. Prediction on the winner of said Super Bowl. Well, apparently the Madden simulation said it's going to be the Bengals, and they've been right quite a bit over the last few years, so I'm going to say Bengals. Uh, Interesting nugget. So I think the Madden Madden simulation was 24-21, right? The Simpsons, many years ago, had the Bengals versus the Rams on their show. Bengals won 24-21. Well, the Simpsons is the Nostradamus of cartoons yeah so so maybe uh i'm cool with either of them winning i would love for cincinnati to win but i do also kind of want stafford to win because i don't think he he'll have another shot of getting to a super bowl joe burrow on the other hand i have a feeling it's gonna be to a few super bowls oh yeah definitely um it's it kind of feels like the super bowl is not very big this year it doesn't, uh, it's not very hyped up like it is normally, but there isn't like the big time quarterbacks in it, really. It doesn't have that big time quarterback feel. You know, Brady's not in it. Um, the the Chiefs aren't going to be playing. It's It feels kind of small, actually. So it's a little weird. Uh, Rodgers is out. Counterpoint here. Number one, I think for me, a big reason for that is because I don't have cable, so I don't keep, see the commercials. Uh, number mm. two, I actually think they're going to be pulling in more non-football people because of the halftime show, you know, because they have Eminem, Snoop Dogg, uh, Mary J. Blige, and uh, chubby Dr. Dre. Uh, yeah. I think they're, and Kendrick Lamar, I forgot about him. I, a lot of people are talking about that halftime show. I've heard it called like millennial dream lineup, basically, kind of like what everyone who grew up in the 90s like kind of wants to see. Well, the... So. The weekend's performance last year was uh, pretty cringe. That's <laughs> all yeah, I it was a little weird. A little weird. Yeah. Anyway, Phil, uh, take us into this week's episode. All right. In professional basketball, what happens between the lines is meant to be the main attraction, with the best athletes in the world coming together, competing for dominance and the right to call themselves best in the world. Though they are not the only people in the arena. As also welcomed are the spectators, 
fans hanging on every moment, hoping for a win by their team, at least, if not an epic moment that they will carry with them for the rest of their lives. However, for some spectators, the thrill of the games and heroics of the players are not enough, as not only are they there to watch the competition, but to show their support for their tribe in other ways, even maybe a drunken brawl with opposing fans, or in their wildest fantasies, rival athletes from the opposing teams. So are you talking about a drunken fan wants to fight a member of the other team that he's not cheering for? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, just go to an Oakland Raiders game back, you know, five <laughs> years ago. It's going to happen, basically. Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, did you, they're just out there fighting anybody. Did you hear about after, I think it was the 49ers-Rams game, uh, that I think it was a Niners fan got beaten so bad he was like in critical condition. Did you hear about that? Was that at the beginning of the season or just uh, like a couple weeks ago? A couple weeks ago. Oh, no. I had heard. I thought that there was a big brawl at the beginning of the season. I didn't hear about the one two weeks ago. Nah, some fans beat the shit out of a 49ers fan and put him in the hospital, I guess. Yeah, it sounds about right. It's a new Oakland Raiders. Yeah, basically, that's kind of what I've heard about the L.A. Rams, so their fan base. Ah, a little, little aggressive. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, images of the Oakland Raiders games, or perhaps fans of the Los Angeles Dodgers, most likely come to mind when you think of these belligerent drunks aching for a fight, and is the topic for today's episode as we take a look at the most infamous night in professional basketball history and recount the malice at the palace. Okay, I am not as into basketball as you are, so I don't even know if I've ever heard of this before. I'm going to have you watch it uh, right before I describe it. So okay. you'll be able to see everything before I describe it to the listeners. Okay, so, excellent. Yeah, I know that you're not as big a basketball fan, so you probably have no idea about this. Well, one. I see one word here, um, and I know that describes a particular team, so I have a feeling <laughs> uh, where this is going. All right. Now, few times in the history of sport has a single game changed the very nature in which a league moves forward. Though, on November the 19th, 2004, at the Palace of Auburn Hills in Auburn Hills, Michigan, between the Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons, one such event occurred. The Pacers were seemingly in control when the most mundane kind of dust-up that you would see in and a normal NBA game occurred between Indiana Pacers forward Ron Artest and Detroit Pistons center Ben Wallace. I'm going to say, Phil, don't know either of those names. I figured if we're talking about a dust-up, we might hear some of the more notorious ones like uh, Dennis oh. Rodman or something like that. So Ron Artest, actually, because of this event, becomes the most notorious. He goes on to change his name a couple more times. He was known as Meta World Peace. And he's now known by another name. So Ah, okay. Well, Mr. Ron Artest, let's, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more about you. Yeah, if you haven't heard of Ron Artest, then you really like weren't a basketball fan back in the last decade. No. Yeah. Now, in order to talk about that individual night, we need to bring up the NBA's past and discuss what the game was like before the league was sanitized. And its image was made into more of a family-friendly version of its former self. Now, 
Looking back on the league in the 80s and 90s, NBA players were much more physical, with the action taking place more under the basket, with the smaller players given the task of just kind of bringing the ball on the inside. Uh, A quick YouTube search of this early past play will bring up results of both heroics in the post and compilation videos of vicious elbows and closed fists that would rival any ice hockey game. So here's the question, okay, and I don't know if you're going to answer this on here. Let's compare the more physical nature of the NBA then to now. Are the injuries about the same? Well, the thing is, a lot of the injuries occurred with these hard fouls. So nowadays, there's really not as many hard fouls because the referees are more likely to completely take someone out of the game. Back then, they would kind of like let it go a little bit, like let the game flow happen. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. So I was just wondering because if it was like this actually was a good change for keeping the players from hurting each other, I guess, or like seriously hurting each other. Oh, yeah. I mean, it has been a really good change for the referees. Some people do say that the referees kind of get in the way too much, that there seems to be a foul every single you know time that the ball is taken down the court now. But yeah. it does help keeping the players from being, you know, like say if someone was going up for a layup and another player on the defense just completely, you know, took them down, like hit him in the back of the head and, you know, took them to the ground. It's, I mean, that's going to cause some injuries. So now if something like that happens, the referees are like right there, Johnny on the spot I'll to, s- you know, give flagrant fouls out or maybe even ejections if it's bad enough. I'll say the last four minutes of a basketball game is the exact same length of a full football game. Yes. Of all the yeah. fouls. Basketball is definitely one of those sports where the last three to four minutes is longer than the entire, you know, third <laughs> quarter was. Yeah. So. You know what I'll say? Um, I think it's good if you want to have refs watching closer or whatever, but um, obviously I'm a big football fan. The thing that I can't stand is – Depending on the crew, it will depend on who's throwing flags. Like, there's no, like, even thing throughout the whole league. It's like, if you get this crew, you know you're going to get these flags. If you get that crew, you're going to get that those flags. Do you think the penalties are like that in basketball? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, they've There's been really some bad examples of, like, refereeing in the sports. Uh, so there was a, a big problem that went on between the Sacramento Kings and the Lakers uh, a long time ago. Well, not a long time, but it was about 20 years ago. Basically, the referees were in it with the um, the mob and, you know, with the betting, the betting rings that were going on. So the referee who was in control of that game basically gave the game to the Los Angeles Lakers. And it was a playoff game of Western Conference final. Ah, OK. Well, that yeah. that's not great. Definitely. So the best example of this were the Detroit Pistons of the late 1980s and early 90s, dubbed the bad boys by the league and soon merchandisers. The Detroit Pistons would employ a full court press and the kind of disruptive defense that was breaking the norms of the old gentlemen's games of the years past. They soon became the most hated team amongst opposing players and the antagonists of season play in the eyes of the media. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, I've obviously I don't know as much about him as you, but after watching The Last Dance, you 
learn quite a bit about their reputation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was, you know, Isaiah Thomas, Dennis Rodman, Bill Lambeer, uh, John Sally. They they were a championship team. And definitely, like, if you're a fan of Jordan, you probably hated these guys. Do you remember watching them on TV? I was a little young to be watching them during their, you know, their heyday. Um, so they they won championships in the, the late, late 80s and the early 90s. So I didn't really come in on it until Michael Jordan had already, like, kind of put them down. So Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess that you would have been, like, four or five when they yeah, were Yeah, I'd have been about four years old. Yeah. So kind of how the story started... Oakland Raiders GM uh, Al Davis actually sent the Pistons GM a box of Raiders merch, uh, T-shirts, hats, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of the Pistons players would start wearing all that merch at practice and kind of like before the games had started. So this would actually give the bad boys their iconic black and silver colors, uh, just like the Raiders had. And you have to remember, too, the Raiders back then, their clothing was all over the place in like, like popular culture. Oh, you're saying like everybody was wearing them. Yeah, everybody was wearing the the like the Raiders jerseys and kind of like it was all over like, you know, everything. I think the Raiders had won another Super Bowl in the very tail end of the 80s or very early 90s when they had Marcus Allen. Um, so maybe that's why they were very popular then as well. No, it was more their, you know, the bad boy reputation ah. and kind of their, you know, their really just tough nose like play and, you know, kind of the Raiders jerseys and like that starter, the Raiders starter jacket was really cool to wear too. Yeah, yep, yep. Now the team, led by their unquestioned leader, the lion-hearted point guard and future Hall of Famer Isaiah Thomas, along with fellow Pistons players John Sally, Rick Mahorn, Bill Lambeer, and Dennis Rodman, composed the Motor City Bad Boys. They would bully opposing players, disrupting their offensive schemes and shaking their psyches, with the stars of the opposing teams finding their tactics especially brutal. Now, this was most importantly and notably Michael Jordan. Yeah, he he talks quite a bit about... uh, It's funny if you watch The Last Dance. He claims he wasn't getting pushed around. His teammates were getting pushed around. Do you remember that? Oh, if you watch the if you watch the old videos, he's definitely also getting pushed around. <laughs> uh, it's they whenever Jordan runs to the you know does his tries to do his thing, tries to take to the skies, you know, tries to dunk. You have like three or four Pistons guys who just basically tackle him. It's it's pretty bad <laughs> at times. It's just funny what a sociopath Michael Jordan is. Like he's like, yeah. oh, they weren't pushing me around. The team wasn't physical enough. Yeah, any documentary, I think The Last Dance talks about it. There's a few um, Dream Team, the 1992 Dream Team. There's a few videos on that where they talk about how Michael Jordan specifically said Isaiah Thomas will not play on this team. And that was even though like the coach of the Dream Team was Pistons coach Chuck Daly. <laughs> uh-huh. I guess Jordan had quite a bit of pull, huh? Oh, definitely. Yes. They knew that the, you know, they knew where their butter was going to be bred for the next decade. True. So. Very true. Now, speaking of Chuck Daly, when it came to Jordan, the Pistons employed what coach Chuck Daly coined Jordan rules, which meant that whenever Michael Jordan attempted to take to the skies or even take the ball on the inside, he would be met 
with stiff defense, basically jumped on by multiple players before he could attack the basket, being mm. attacked himself, basically. Okay. I I mean, I guess it's one way to stop him. Oh, yeah. Even though all he has to do is kick it out to, and obviously, the rest of his team is completely open. And they could take the easy shot. It was all about breaking down, kind of. They didn't want any momentum to go along with Jordan getting that huge dunk. Yeah. Right. And and uh, we all know Michael, he doesn't share the ball. No, not really. It's so crazy because when you think back on those games, you think it was all Jordan. It was, you know, but it was so much of Dennis Rodman, so much of, I think Horace Grant was a big part of that, you know, the first uh, three championship series later on Dennis Rodman and then a whole cast of players around him but you really just think about Michael Jordan because that's what all the highlights were right man Horace Grant awesome glasses oh definitely Jesus. Yeah. then then he went on to become a star with on the magic so ah okay yep right along with Shaq <laughs> now what they lacked in pure finesse the Pistons greatly made up for in brute strength yeah, just like our friend Matty D, we remember that finesseless strong boy. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, he uh, basically went from like 165 pounds to 210 over the summer. He might have been uh, might have been on the juice. He but... might have been. <laughs> now, many in the league and media claimed more closely resembled gang violence, Ooh. which the team's management attempted to move away from after the dissolution of the group's core. Even after winning back-to-back championships, garnering the greatest success that the franchise had ever experienced. They would even go on, the Pistons, to change the team's logo, the uniforms, and the team's colors. This was in an attempt to rebrand themselves as a team that more closely resembled their rivals. Namely, you know, the Bulls. Okay, so they did that just to try to scrub their image. Yeah, definitely. They had... Uh, I mean, obviously, winning championships is great, but you kind of want to get like a better brand in the nation. You have an awesome brand that everybody loves in Detroit and parts of Michigan, but everyone outside of your little bubble hates your fucking guts. So it's kind of <laughs> like I'm trying to think of some NFL teams that are maybe kind of like that. Probably the Raiders, honestly. Well, I mean, the Raiders, when they were winning. Are Ooh, yeah, no, sing- they were... Yeah. Yeah. They were I don't they weren't convicts, but they were people they were players that nobody else wanted because of how unruly they were. Oh yeah, definitely. It's I mean, even though they were, you know, had huge fan base in California, everyone outside of California hated them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was the definitely. Pistons logo was that horse, right? Yes. They so they changed it actually to the uh, the horse. Um, before that, it was the red, white, and blue that we see today with the basketball with Detroit Pistons on it. Ah. Then they they changed their uniforms and their logos. They changed their colors to like this ugly teal color, and their uniform um, had the new logo on it, which was like it. They said it looked like a knight from a, a chessboard, basically. I, yeah, I guess I could see that. Yeah, that's kind of how Detroit Pistons fans like accepted it. Now, in the next decade, the game would be, of course, dominated by Michael Jordan and his Bulls teammates, winning six of the next eight NBA championships, 
with the Bulls actually adopting some of the hard-nosed play that the bad boys had been known for. Even going on to pick up former Pistons forward Dennis Rodman for the team's second three-peat run. The Jordan era saw the NBA reach heights that had been considered unimaginable even during the 80s boom of the Lakers and the Celtics, which saw dual stars Magic Johnson and Larry Bird dominate the sport. If you watch The Last Dance, Dennis Rodman, quite a shit show. Oh yeah, definitely. I think he's still a shit show, technically. Really a shit show off the court, sometimes on the court, but he had dominant play. I mean, when you are that good, you're allowed to, you know, ruffle a few feathers. Very true. Very, I mean, look at uh, Ray Lewis. He killed two guys, and he's uh, he's fine. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, after six miserable seasons under the new banner, the Pistons would revert back to their old uniforms, even embracing the bad boys' legacy of the past, which had, of course, seen them win back-to-back championships and saw a refound success on the court after taking up this banner. Building a new core around guard Chauncey Billups and center Ben Wallace, they would make a run at and win the 2003-2004 NBA championship. This was after making a midseason trade for power forward Rashid Wallace. That year, the Pistons met the Reggie Miller-led Indiana Pacers in a six-game conference championship series for the East, which saw some of the most hard-nosed defense of the entire season. The winning Detroit Pistons would go on, like I just mentioned, to win that 2004 NBA championship. Okay, Uh, so this is kind of leading up to kind of the episode, the, the event transpires, right? Oh, definitely. So that six-game series for the Eastern Conference Championship uh, left a lot of hard feelings on both sides. And the two teams would actually meet again early on in the next season. And that's the night of the infamous Malice at the Palace. Gotcha. Okay. Other thing here, uh, Reggie Miller versus Patrick Ewing. Who's uglier? Ooh, that is a tough one. It has to be Patrick Ewing. Yeah. Yeah. I I think you got to... I think you almost have to give it to him. Yeah, he looked like he was, we mentioned it before, he looked like he was about 48 when he was playing for Georgetown uh, <laughs> in his college years. So there was never, there was never really a time when he was on TV that he was kind of like the young, young spry looking guy. He just always looked like an old dude. I want to say one quick thing here before you continue. I don't, this is the thing, I think basketball and football kind of share this similarity where They've changed the rules to make defense very hard to play. And I think not pure defensive games constantly, but it takes, I feel like when you're not allowed to play defense, really, it takes the fun out of these games. Yeah. Well, both leagues have kind of changed rules to make offense a little bit more, you know, like go a little bit easier. So one thing that the NFL did was they made it easier for the wide receivers to get out on their routes without being harassed by the defense. So before you would really have to almost fight your way out of the, out of the block in order to go on your route. The same thing happened with the smaller guys in the NBA, Uh, the smaller guys, you know, they were trying to move the ball around, move themselves around. They would end up getting beat up trying to, you know, get themselves open to, get a layup so basically that's why it was all taking place inside 
because you needed your guys to basically be strong enough to take it to the rack themselves. Yeah, I just, well, the other thing is, is like football wise, um, you get penalties for basically every defensive play you try to make, which I think really kind of sucks. Yeah, definitely. And basketball is kind of the same way now. So like 30 years ago, you wouldn't see half as many of the penalties that you're seeing now. Uh, they got a, like I was mentioning about kind of like the point guards came into prominence right after they started changing the rules to make it easier for them to move around with the basketball. Yeah, I, I get it because people prefer to watch offensive games, but I feel like there's got to be a sweet balance. Yeah, I mean, in 20 years, they're just going to have robots refereeing everything. It's just going to be <laughs> cameras and computers figuring out fouls and everything like that. Yeah, yeah, so, you're right about that. Yeah, definitely. And it's going to make it a lot easier for, you know, the games to be rigged, too. So the the NFL and the NBA be liking that also. Well, I hope they, I hope they give the robots sad expressions uh, on their face <laughs> when the fans start booing them. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Now, hard feelings would carry over into the next season, and along with it, a newfound rivalry between the Eastern Conference foes. This would reignite early on in the season, with the teams meeting after a long offseason, which had seen both teams emerge as early favorites for postseason play. However, this first game would see the Pacers come into the last minute of play ahead by 15 points, though with what could be seen as maybe an insult to the home team Pistons, the Pacers would actually keep their starting players on the court. This was in despite of the lead, though there is an argument to be made that the Pacers were shorthanded that night. They had three players that were on the bench in street clothes, including Reggie Miller, who had a broken finger. Okay, so you're saying it's kind of insulting, but maybe it was incidental insult. Like, they didn't purposely do it to piss them off. No, well, I mean, they might have. That's kind of the thing. There's an argument to be made that perhaps they just didn't have enough players, but they had enough players that they didn't need to keep all their starters out on the court. Gotcha. Maybe they thought their backup sucked and would lose lose the game for them. Yeah, maybe. I mean, just like we said, those last few minutes take as long as the entire third quarter. Yeah. So maybe they were worried about, you know, Ben Wallace and, you know, the Pistons coming back. So who knows? Could be. Now, in that final minute of the game, Pistons center Ben Wallace was backing down Pacers forward Steven Jackson, whom, because of the finality of the game, pretty much let Wallace by for an easy layup. Now, this was when forward Ron Artest, currently known as Meta Sandiford Artest, before that name, he was Meta World Peace, came up from behind Wallace and delivered a hard foul, a slap on the back of the head, to which Ben Wallace immediately reacted, pushing Artest away in anger because of the perceived slights. And also playing so rough during the closeout of an already spoken for game. Now, the resulting dust-up between the two players would be quickly broken up by the officials and players from both teams, though Ron Artest would actually decide to take a little break from the situation and lay down on the scorer's table, which in turn further enraged Ben Wallace and the the fans. (laughs) So hold on. Was his actual legal name Meta World Peace? Yes. 
For a while, it was. Uh, did he? Huh? Did he change it as that? Like, did yes, he change he did. it or? Okay, interesting. Uh, but during the time he was playing the game, this particular game, his name is Ron Artest, right? Yes. Yeah. His uh, his birth name is Ron Artest. So oh, he okay. changed his name later on. So. Meta World Peace. All right. Well, yeah. I guess uh, kind of shows this guy's character a little bit. Well, it, I'm, it's, it's crazy you've never heard of him. He's a pretty famous person. It's So it's the kind of deal where he was kind of known for his bad attitude and his, you know, demeanor. So he changed his name almost kind of like saying that he was here for peace kind of deal, I think, from what I remember. So gotcha. Okay. I mean, the name Ron Artest sounds familiar, but I, as far as like putting a picture or putting a face to the name, can't really do it. Yeah. Well, we're going to watch the video in a little bit and you'll probably remember him if you see his ah, face. Okay. All right. So still angered by the slight, Ben Wallace began throwing towels and his armbands at Ron Artest, which really was about to get him ejected by the officials. When from out of the stands, a cup supposedly full of Diet Coke was thrown in the direction of Ron Artest, whom was still laying down on the scorer's table next to the stands. That cup, thrown by Pistons fan John Green, would actually go on and hit Ron Artest in the upper chest and face. This sent the 6 foot 7 inch, 260 pound power forward into the stands in the direction of the cup thrower and began one of the craziest nights in league history. Okay, alright, John Green um, stirring up some shit here. So was he mad because he he wasn't a fan of Diet Coke? Did he prefer Mr. Pibb? <laughs> What enraged him? Well, I mean, it was, uh, you know, there's a lot of things. Who knows? He kind of says a lot of shit now. Uh, you know, a little bit of revisionist history on his part. So he, you can see him clearly in the video, like, go down a few rows and toss the cup at Ron Artest. And it is, it's like a, like a miracle throw that he actually, from so far away, perfectly hit him right in the chest. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Oh, so you can actually see him, the fan, coming down the stairs just to throw it. Yeah, I, it wasn't on live TV that you saw it, but there were so many you know, videos of the situation. All of the cameras were kind of pointed in that direction that there was video footage of him tossing the cup in the air and it hitting Ron Artest. That's pretty funny. Now, according to John Green, uh, he would actually go on to tell the Detroit News that he never intended to hit anyone. The day that I threw the cup, I forgot about the laws of physics. I hope that no one ever throws anything at the palace again. Ah, okay. Yeah, this is definitely revisionist history here. Yes, definitely. He, if you watch the video, he definitely cup at, you know, Ron Artest. Huh. Okay, he forgot about the law of physics. I like that explanation there. Yeah, I don't know if he wasn't throwing it at Ron. I don't know what he was doing or who he was throwing it at. Or, you know, I one of those deals. I, I think it's pretty obvious who he was throwing it yeah. at. Oh, definitely. Yeah. At the time, Ron Artest was one of the star players on a promising young team, though he was dealing with some mental health issues involving depression and anxiety. Uh, this would actually negatively affect his passion for playing the game and required him to have a traveling therapist accompany him whenever the team would travel. 
Now, throughout his career, Artest was plagued with anger issues that manifested themselves in on-court altercations with opposing players and league officials. I mean, if, if we're being real here, his behavior, at least a little bit that you've told me about now, uh, does line up with someone dealing with uh, these types of things or some sort of latent mental issue. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, everyone thought that him lying on that table was meant to be kind of like, uh, you know, showing off or getting Ben Wallace to get more angry. But he kind of, I'm going to go into it in a second. He kind of has an excuse for it. And really, if you think about it, it's it's one of the smarter ideas that, you know, you could have if you are someone who gets riled up really easily. Okay. All right. I'll be waiting uh, to hear this, Phil. Now, according to our test, one of the coping mechanisms that his therapist had given him was that whenever he felt like a situation was getting out of control, he would take a little break and remove himself from the situation. Uh, He would call it taking five. Uh, He claimed that he laid on that table first at the beginning of the fight, then a second time after Ben Wallace had thrown some of his armbands at him, causing him to get up from the table and yell at the referees about Wallace and what he had just done. But he claims that he was sit- he was laying on that table just to kind of calm himself down and take himself out of the situation. Couldn't he just have went to his bench and sat on a chair? Yeah, I mean, I have no idea. In hindsight, you know, obviously. But it's really not the first time that he had laid down on the scorer's table. So from what I had read, he had done it before in the past. Here's the other thing. Did he need to slap that guy in the back of the head? No, but (laughs) he gave, he was playing defense and he probably meant to, you know, give him a hard foul. So gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And it's one of those things too, you know, you're in the passion of the game. You don't want to watch the other guy score. So Ben Wallace was one of the main players on the other team. The star. True. I, yeah. One of the two stars. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't do it, but I guess a ultra-competitive guy with anger issues, he might do it. Yeah, I don't even think you'd be able to reach Ben Wallace, the back of his head. He's he's pretty tall. He's about seven foot tall. So. Yeah, I'd have to accidentally like slap his <laughs> lower back or something. He might, for me to hit him in the back of the head, he might have to duck. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right, so right now we're going to pause it and go and watch this quick and then come back. So, Cody, we just watched that video. What are your initial reactions? Uh, quite crazy. I don't know if I've ever seen anything like that before uh, in any professional sports that I can remember. Yeah, definitely during this time, I was watching a lot of Sports Center. You know, it's something that was on television a lot. Like Sports Center, the Sports Nation, all of those shows were showing this nonstop for like a couple weeks after. I mean, it's pretty fucking nuts. I I don't know. I I I agree. The fans were out of line, but also, I think the players need to not punch the fans. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, definitely. There's wrongs on both sides. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, but it's just it's so crazy. It's been so long since this is you know occurred, but it's something that you can't even believe like really happened. When you go back and watch it. No, it's pretty crazy. You know what? uh, One thing that I always found interesting. This is, I don't know if they're allowed to do this in basketball, but if any fan runs on the football field, the players are openly allowed to like tackle them. 
I don't know if they can do that in basketball, but it just seemed like kind of weird they're allowed to do that. Yeah, that's and like pro wrestling. So in pro wrestling, if a fan kind of jumps into the, you know, above the barricades, like over the barricades, then definitely it's called clipping them. So the wrestlers just, you know, put the boots to them. You think so, that's especially like, old school wrestlers. You think that's like a part of an agreement if you buy a ticket or whatever, where it's like if you go where you're not supposed to, they can legally assault you? No, but I mean, it happens. You yeah, know, it's 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 no man's land. You should not be there. You know, you're right. not one of those guys. Right. So. Maybe they're allowed to in case it was like a threat. Like they don't know if that person is an active threat or anything. Oh, yeah, definitely. They don't know if they have a knife or a gun or, you know, what's going on. Right. So, right. Now, just after the cup had hit him. Ron Artest would jump off the table and run up the stands in the direction of the cup thrower, though he initially went after the wrong man. The man he went after was Michael Ryan, whom was standing near the actual cup thrower, John Green. Artest would grab Ryan and wrestle him to the ground, yelling, Did you throw that? As the fans began surrounding Artest, the cup thrower, John Green, would actually grab Ron Artest from behind, and another fan, William Paulson would throw a full cup of beer in Ron Artest's face while Artest was being held back. Uh, later on in the video, John Green, the cup thrower, was also seen punching Ron Artest in the back of the head, which caused Ron Artest to turn around and Colcock him in the face too. Yeah, this John Green guy, um, not a he's kind of an asshole. Oh yeah, definitely. And later on he would get all that stuff. So it's yeah. Yeah, definitely a lot of the blame for this ends up getting put onto John Green's back. Yeah, I, I can see why. It's interesting that John Green, after he, you know, Artest didn't even realize it was him who threw it, decides to start, like, wrestling him. It's a very interesting choice on his part. Yeah, one thing, too, so when Ron Artest got up there, John Green, I guess actually, when he sidestepped, he put his foot out, supposedly, and tripped Ron Artest. That's why Artest kind of fell down as he was grabbing for uh, Michael Ryan. Gotcha. Okay. So I should also talk about, too, uh, if you notice on the way up, Ron Artest kind of jumps up and nearly falls on top of a man. Actually, he did fall on top of that guy. Um his name was Mark Boyle, and he was at the broadcast table. He actually stood up, tried to get in front of him when Ron Artest got up and tried to run into the fans. But apparently he was knocked backwards and stepped on by Ron Artest. He would actually suffer five fractured vertebrae and a large gouge on his head. Holy shit. God damn, yeah. he really got hurt. Yeah, Ron Artest basically ran right through. Afterwards, though, Ron Artest would apologize to Boyle. Uh, he said that he hadn't realized that he had trampled uh, Mark Boyle. I just five vertebrae, man. That's that's pretty hard. I mean, that's pretty serious. Oh, yeah. I mean, a 260 pound man basically just like running over you. It's, you know, a big dude. So, right. As the video shows, just after Paulson threw the beer in Ron Artest's face, Pacer small forward Steven Jackson whom had immediately followed Ron Artest into the stands, laid Paulson out with a punch to the face. And that's when the brawl began, with more fans from the surrounding seats joining in, a lot of them throwing beer and food all over the two. This was followed by Pacers players Eddie Gill, 
David Harrison, Reggie Miller, Fred Jones, and Jamal Tinsley, who had actually entered the stands to pull Ron Artest and later Steven Jackson back out onto the floor. They were also joined by a lot of the NBA officials and the Pistons player Rasheed Wallace. I was going to say, I was like, what are the Pistons players doing this whole time? But I guess at least one of them was trying to help. Yeah, they were kind of all like in the middle of the court. You got to remember, from the time that the cup hits Ron Artest to the time that he's pulled out of the stands, it was about 40 seconds. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it was pretty quick. So if you weren't on the sideline, you might not have known it was actually happening last 20 or 15 seconds of the whole melee in the stands. Okay. Yeah, I suppose that makes sense. Yeah. Also, I should mention too, uh, David Wallace, who was Ben Wallace's brother, was in the stands also and had involved himself in the brawl. Huh. Uh, what, did he punch anybody or did he just kind of get in to break it up or what was he doing? He was, uh, basically, he was one of the fans who was kind of in there fighting and, you know, grabbing at Ron Artest. Ah, okay. So after only about 40 seconds in the stand, Artest and Jackson were pulled from the bleachers, with Artest stepping back onto the court, uh, walking really just along the sideline, along the way to the Pacers bench, as he was approached by two Pistons fans, who were actually able to step on the floor due to all the confusion. The two fans, Alvin Hackelford and Charlie Haddad, Uh, They were Pistons fans who were really known for trying to get into altercations with NBA players in order, according to a lot of people, to file lawsuits. Uh, As our test is walking on the sidelines, you can see Alvin Hackelford caught on camera approaching him. The two size each other up for a second before Ron Artest punches Hackleford in the face. Uh, His friend Charlie Haddad actually ran over to help. Uh, Both of the men actually would fall on the slippery floor. Okay, uh, yeah, these guys, number one, if your name's Alvin Hackleford, maybe don't be getting in fights with very large athletic men. Um, But yeah, they sound like uh, a couple of cunts here, Phil. Oh, yeah, definitely. Cunts to the fucking nth degree. (laughs) It's, I mean, the thing is, too, when you watch basketball on TV, uh, they don't look that tall because they're all so tall that it kind of makes them look like a little bit average. Even some of the six, five guys you see on the floor with the seven footers, they look normal, you know, compared to the giants standing next to them. When you see Hackleford, he's probably not a small dude. If you saw him in real life, but compared to Ron Artest, you would be surprised if Hackleford could even reach Ron Artest's face (laughs) with a punch. He's so much shorter. Is there anything more pathetic than like people who try to, trick people into doing something that then allows them to sue them oh definitely scumbags yeah Yeah. oh so just chasing after lawsuits definitely there's a big thing uh in the midwest you know like people will try to purposely fall on ice in front of stores so then they can sue them thank god for security cameras now where they can like see that they're actively doing it to themselves but yeah it's pretty sad Yeah, one thing, uh, listening to crime and sports, you hear a lot of boxers uh, going to a bar and having some fat drunk, like basically trying to start a fight with them. And then if the boxer even pushes them, they immediately, you know, they show up with a neck brace and try to sue him for assault. (laughs) Ah, fucking people, man. Now, this is where it gets really crazy. So as Charlie Haddad, the friend of the man who got punched in the face by test, went to get up. 
Pacers power forward Jermaine O'Neal would actually take a running start at Haddad and punch him square in the face. Though, as he threw the punch, luckily, he slipped on the floor and only grazed him in the head. Though, it was enough to send him onto the floor. Uh, It only really looked devastating, more devastating than it actually was. Though, if he hadn't slipped, the blow would have been devastating to Haddad, and they think might have killed him. Killed him? Jesus, okay. Uh, Yeah, I I was going to say, this this part of the video... That one looked pretty hard, but I guess uh, that was just from that camera angle. Yeah, well, he did slip, and he only grazed him in the head, but that was enough to knock him square on his ass. Mm. So that was that's what a miss looked like from a seven foot, two hundred, probably eighty pound man. Yeah, if a player kills a fan, um, yeah, that might (laughs) that might cause quite a bit of problems. Yeah, saying that he might have killed him might be a little facetious, but it's all over, like all like that saying right so it's kind right. of where that comes from i mean he probably would have just knocked the fuck out of him, yeah but probably as the pacers players left the arena fans would begin pelting them with cups of beer and popcorn this was all being caught on camera uh, they would harass ron artest stephen jackson and jermaine o'neill as they exited the floors toward the locker room those pacer players were actually flanked by nba officials and pacers officials who were also being, you know, rained down upon with all of this trash. Upon returning to the locker room, the police would finally show up. Uh, They would try to arrest Jermaine O'Neal, according to him, uh, though he actually told police that he was getting on the plane back to Indianapolis and that he could get in touch with their lawyers on Monday. Huh. Do they accept that as a answer? Yes. Okay. He got on the plane and went home. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that... Cops might have to review the footage and kind of find out who is actually to blame. Oh, definitely. I mean, if if this would have been kind of outside of a club and Jermaine O'Neal wasn't a millionaire basketball player, totally different story. Mm. But it's, you know, very different, very high profile arrest, you know, and that sort of situation. Yeah, yeah. After the game, which is actually called off due to the melee. Sports television shows showed the fight on repeat for days afterwards. Uh, And in the post-game show, right after the game, the commentators would actually be blaming the Pistons fans, with John Saunders referring to the fans as a bunch of punks. Tim Legler actually claimed that the fans were the ones who had really crossed the line. Though there were kind of some back and forth about how players and fans were really should be sharing the blame. Uh, Stephen A. Smith would state that they should be ashamed of themselves, and some of them, and this is in reference to the Pistons fans, should be as rusted as far as I'm concerned. Though the narrative from the sports media would quickly change on what was being reported. Uh, They would show less video of the belligerent fans throwing drinks and even chairs. This was actually a change to showing edited clips of Ron Artest storming the stands, edited clips of Steven Jackson punching the fan in his face in the stands, and of course, Jermaine O'Neal's running punch at Charlie Haddad. Yeah, uh, first off, I got to say this, Stephen A. Smith, most annoying person on TV, I think. Uh, number two, yeah, I think this one, I think definitely the one fan in particular was out of line. Um, I think maybe some of the players who were uh, the media were going after the fans. 
Um, the, it, it's hard, but I do think when you're in that position, you are held on a higher pedestal of you need to be more mature than the drunken fans at the game. You know what I mean? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, it's not even like this was a normal crowd. Uh, th- this was a situation where it was at the end of the So you got to think about it. If it's a bl- not really a blowout, but the Pistons were behind by, you know, a pretty decent margin at the end of the game. A lot of the fans who had bought the expensive tickets for the lower deck, obviously, a lot of them just left the game. Uh, a lot of the fans who were, you know, maybe buying the cheap seat tickets for the upper deck had actually come down, supposedly, and filled in those seats. Uh, this game had been going on for hours, so you can imagine how much beer they had all drank. So the fans were probably a little more poor than you would expected down in the lower deck and a lot more drunk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see that. Um, and, you know, you get drunk people who are riled up about their team losing. Yeah, it's yep. it's that, so... Yep, and you see, you know, Ben Wallace taking a hard foul, and he's pissed off, and it pisses you off too, and you're already drunk. So yeah, yeah, very true. Now, according to a Sports Nation poll, 46% of viewers actually thought that the Pistons fans were to blame for the events that occurred that night. I I figured that would have been higher. Yeah, I also thought it might have been higher. I believe it was like right afterwards because I know that that number went down after the edited videos were being shown like constantly. Gotcha. Okay. So you're you're leaning on the fact that uh, ESPN might have switched the narrative. Yeah, it was. I mean, from what I was reading, it was kind of the league and the media who wanted to take the blame away from the fans because they knew where their bread was being buttered. They knew who was buying Ah. tickets, who was buying merch, all this stuff. Who was paying the bills, keeping the lights on. Gotcha. Okay, yes. I I forget about that, that the fans are the ones feeding the the league, more or less. Yeah, exactly. They're feeding the beast. So The narrative from the media would actually speak about how the players in the league had turned into a bunch of spoiled millionaires. They also referenced the influence that the hip-hop culture was having on the NBA's image. This was to include Ron Artest's budding rap career. Also, they also talked about other NBA players entering the music industry. They would also cite Ron Artest's many problems with discipline, on and off the court up into that point. They would even utilize dog whistle tactics, citing the, quote, thug culture of the current crop of NBA superstars. Yeah, okay, that uh, th- that's not great. Um, here's the thing, though. I guarantee Ron Artest's rap, or his rapping, his music career, fucking terrible. I mean, I don't know if you can rebuttal that, but I have a feeling it's really bad. I've never heard it, but I would put pretty decent money to say that it probably wasn't that great. I've, I mean, you're, he's not known for being like a great rapper, so it's kind of that feel where Shaq tried to become a rapper too. Well, that's so. what I was say. All these famous athletes who try to start a music career to coincide with their athletic career, it's always pretty cringe. Yeah, and of course, anyone who's watched any of the commercials knows that Aaron Rodgers has that budding music career too so yeah he uh he's the hippie in the guitar shop right oh yeah no yeah he's wearing the like the stocking cap the man bun and everything at the so 
I mean, he's got the hair for it, so he could definitely be a uh, dirty country singer. Nah, he'd probably be like a a dirty alternative. Like a at a coffee shop. An alternative rock guy. Yeah, definitely. But, I mean, getting back to this, it they really did go against their own players, really blame, like, the culture, the people who were... You really should invest in these people, but they were kind of going after them, making them seem like they were the bad guys and that it was that it was not the league's fault at all. Yeah, yeah. In reaction to the melee, Commissioner David Stern would actually enact a new strict dress code. Now, according to like everything that I read, this was really to clean up the damaged image that the NBA was having. These provisions a long or short sleeve dress shirt, collared or turtleneck, and or sweater, dress khakis, slacks, or dress jeans, appropriate shoes and socks, including dress shoes, dress boots, or other presentable shoes. This was not to include sneakers, sanders, flip-flops, or work boots. And this was to be worn before the games, after the games, and in the press conferences. Okay, I'm guessing this is still a rule in the NBA? Yes, it is. Is David Sterner or Stern still the commissioner? No, he is not. There's a new commissioner now. I was going to say, I, I remember the new one. Everyone seems to love him. Yes, compared to David Stern, everyone loves him. But it, it's not very hard. Everyone loves David Stern. Okay, all right. On top of the new dress code, added security was made available for games to prevent any further disturbances between fans and players. Alcohol sales would be limited, and fan belligerence would no longer be tolerated as it has been before. Although stiffer punishments and player ejections were now being given out more liberally. In response to any kind of altercations between players that before would have been dealt with a little bit more lightly. Okay, well I think the changes for the fans are very good there. I think that's a generally good idea. Don't let them get completely saw, you know, sauced at the game. Um, yeah. So, and I can see this was probably very embarrassing for the NBA if if we're being real. Oh, like definitely. The event, yeah. You know. Really getting back, well, kind of like the having the security thing. It really showed how little control they had over these situations. I mean, they really didn't have a lot in the way of security guards. There were police officers there, but there were only three of them, and they were moonlighting, kind of like off-duty police officers. So, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm assuming they ratcheted up that security quite a bit. Oh, definitely. Yeah. During the malice at the palace, actually, there's audio of 911 calls of people calling the police, trying to get more cops to come there to settle that down. They thought it was going to be a full scale riot. I mean, it probably could have turned into one, but thankfully, I guess it it didn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. In all of the documentaries that I was watching in the week, a lot of the security officials there were saying that the most important thing was to get the Pacers players off of the floor. And that would calm down the fans. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's true. Now, punishment towards players would be very stiff, as Ron Artest would be suspended for the rest of the season. Uh, this would actually turn out to be 73 regular season games, and also the playoff games he would have to miss too. The next worst punishment was given to Steven Jackson. He was given 30-game suspension. 
Next up, Jermaine O'Neal was actually originally given a 25-game suspension, though it would be reduced to 15 games after an appeal. Uh, The Pistons player, center Ben Wallace, would actually be given a six-game suspension. Finally, Reggie Miller, Chauncey Billups, Derek Coleman, and Eldon Campbell were all given one-game suspension. And that was mostly just for leaving the bench during the fight. Okay. Um, yeah, I was. this is the part I was most curious about, like the the punishments here. Um, yeah, I guess it's pretty standard, I guess. I mean, you would assume Ron Artest is probably going to be not allowed to play the rest of the season. Um, yeah, the, the interesting one is like the bench guys, because Reggie Miller is literally in a suit. Um, from what I remember. Yes, yes he was. The, the thing was, he's kind of the leader of the team. So he needs to be out there. And, you know, if anyone could calm everybody down, it's Reggie Miller. Right, so, right. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, yeah, I guess uh, maybe the sentences or the suspensions kind of fit the the punishment, I guess. Yeah, it was definitely Ron Art, you know, running in anger into the fans being the original. I could definitely see him getting the full suspension. Um, Jermaine O'Neal actually kind of thought after appeal only had 15 games. He might have gotten off kind of light for being seen, you know, punching the guy in the face. But I mean, when things got cooled down, uh, that's when the appeal happened. So it wasn't quite as, you know, volatile when the appeal happened. The 25 game suspension happened like really quickly. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. Also, this would actually have a huge effect on the Pacers' playoffs and championship hopes. The Pacers would go from a team that was very much likely to compete in the Eastern Conference Championship, probably even the NBA Championship, to a team that was kind of on the bubble when playoff time came around and was exited uh, in the second round. So... Okay. It hurt their playoff chances not having Ron Artest for the rest of the season and Steven Jackson and Jermaine O'Neal for all of those games. So they had to miss okay. They did the other two guys they didn't have to miss the playoff games though, right? No, they were there for the playoffs. Okay. You think Ron Artest is that good of a player? I mean, he's definitely an important piece. Um you really when you're playing up against the best teams in the league, you need all of your best pieces out on the floor for you, uh, at least at, you know, if not all at the same time, at different times, especially when it comes up to matchups. He played really stiff defense along with Steven Jackson. The two of them together, like, were really good locking everything down. Then you have Jermaine O'Neal on the inside. Okay. All right. How about the fans? What happened to the fans, Phil? Well, all of the fans that were involved in the disturbances that night would be banned from Pistons home games. Uh, supposedly for life, though I haven't heard if any of those have been lifted yet. Alvin Hackelford and Charlie Haddad would actually be charged with trespassing for entering the court that night. John Ackerman, John Green, Bryant Johnson, William Paulson, and David Wallace, who was Ben Wallace's brother, they were all charged with varying accounts of assault and battery, uh, with the cup thrower, John Green, actually being blamed for starting the incident that night. Uh, One fan, Bryant Jackson, was actually charged with felony assault after it was discovered that he had loosened a chair and was trying to throw it at Jermaine and very nearly hit him. He was caught on video doing that. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah, I guess that guy should get charged for that. I'm guessing John Green 
probably didn't get felonies, but I'm guessing he definitely, I guess I'm most curious what he got charged with. John Green was charged with two counts of assault and battery, with the first being for the initial throwing of the cup, and the second for striking Ron Artest from behind in the stands. Uh, John Green really would only be sentenced for 30 days in jail, though. This was for punching Artest. The other account for him throwing the cup would actually be dropped. He would also be ordered by a judge, though, to attend anger management classes. So he actually spent 30 days in jail for this. Yes, from what I saw, he spent 30 days in jail. Okay, I, I guess... I don't know. I I guess that that's fitting. I do I do think he deserves that. Oh yeah, definitely. When you're in a situation like that, it almost feels like you just get to go, you know. Maybe if, at the time if you're drunk, people don't probably think of the consequences of their actions in that situation. Right. I'm assuming they threw out the cup thing because it would have been two two identical charges and they probably would have ran concurrently anyway. So do you know what I mean? So he would have probably served 30 days regardless. Um, yeah. Also throwing a cup isn't really who would go to jail for 30 days for throwing a cup. It's it's one of those things that kind of like later on when the heat kind of went down, they probably just thought, oh, that's silly. We'll just give them for punching, you know, round our test in the head. Right. Right. How about the uh, players? Did they get any uh, outside charges? There were actually um, a lot of those players would be charged with different levels of assault, though a lot of their their sentences would be suspended. I was going to say they can afford <laughs> nice lawyers. Um, yes. So they'll get them out of that. Definitely. Very good lawyers, especially when Jermaine O'Neal is able you're not arresting me. I'm going home. And then yeah. he goes home. So, right. yeah. Right. Now, John Green, in an interview, would later say that he was actually innocent because he hit Ron Artest in defense of himself and his fellow fans. Also, he argued that he merely just kind of threw the cup in the air and never meant to hit anyone with it. Yeah, I don't know about that. Um, I guess if you're going to do that, you wouldn't throw a full cup, right? Yeah, well, I mean, if you watch it, most of the liquid out of it before the cup hit on our tests but he kind of threw it like in a flipping fashion so it flipped up in the air and emptied all of its but he probably actually in his wildest dreams didn't think he could hit him but obviously he was aiming for you can see his face like he's looking right at him when he throws right right yeah uh yeah (laughs) what a dipshit oh definitely so there's actually um a series on netflix called untold uh, they did an episode on this. I watched it a few months ago and uh, really good. I actually watched it again two days ago for this. But uh, there was an interview shown from that untold episode with John Green. Uh, he actually answered a question about if he had felt bad for letting someone else taking the blame uh, for the cup being thrown at Ron Artest. He said, I felt relief. The only thing I regret is not putting my foot out a little, a little sooner. That was in regards to tripping around our test. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So apparently the later the two would later become friends. Really? They became friends? Yeah. Uh, unlikely friends, according to the article. Okay. Oh, interesting. So the next time that the Pacers would play Detroit at the Palace, 
there was actually a bomb threat that was made uh, at the Pacers locker room. This game occurred on March 25th, 2005, and that game would be delayed for 90 minutes, though there weren't any explosives that were found. So the game was able to continue. Uh, That game actually saw the Pacers once again defeat the Pistons. Ron Artest and Jermaine O'Neal both missing that game. Obviously, Ron Artest missed the game due to his season-long suspension, and Jermaine O'Neal was dealing with a shoulder injury at the time. Gotcha. Okay. So, really to end out the Palace, uh, on October 12, 2017, the Palace at Auburn Hills shut its door for good. The Pistons would actually move to their new arena at the Little Caesars Arena September 5, 2017. Ah, not that long ago. Nope, definitely. It's uh, It kind of closed the door on really, you know, this whole incident. I mean, it's a whole new team now. You know, it's still pretty big history. It kind of changed everything for the whole game. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a crazy event. We were, what, in high school when it happened. Uh, I definitely wasn't watching any sports in high school, but... Uh, I, I've now that I've seen this video, I feel like I've maybe seen clips of this somewhere, but it's uh, it's definitely a crazy event. I would highly recommend anybody who's interested in this to watch the the clips of it. Oh, definitely, and it's all that the late night talk at the time too. That's the biggest thing that I remember was like them talking about it for quite a bit. So, okay, yeah, I am. I mean, it's quite a big. Uh, event that happened like something that you've never seen happen before oh definitely yeah hopefully you never see it again who knows pittsburgh steelers games you're probably going to see a lot on (laughs) any given night but you know that's that's pittsburgh here it's expected i feel like this type of fans versus players probably more a higher chance of it happening in the european sports uh rugby soccer stuff like that oh definitely at the pub afterwards Oh, you know, for they're just sure. bare knuckle in it out the pubs. The thing too, we really don't see it, but I wonder how many times there's like incidents where fans are in altercations in the stands and, you know, obviously the game's not going to stop for that. So no. it just kind of happens. So I'm, I'm, I guarantee it happened. I'm sure security gets them out of there pretty quick though. Oh, definitely. I mean, hopefully they got a little shit. So, and they have cameras everywhere. So. Right. Exactly. Well, uh, we've been going for quite a while here, Phil. Uh, anybody who is listening who's maybe attended this game, maybe they know one of these people, or maybe they just watched it on TV and they want to let us know their feelings about this particular game-changing incident, where can they uh, do that, Phil? They can hit us up on our email, subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we've actually gotten a lot of great uh on our Instagram, we got a really good one uh, from a fan, Gabrielle. She was uh, talking about the episode that we did last week. Apparently, she works in the uh, – well, she inspects meat. Uh, and she's pr- telling me some pretty disgusting stuff about uh, what goes on with that. So thank you, Gabrielle. That was a great conversation. <laughs> if, they wanna, if anyone wants to hit us up on Instagram, Subliminal Deception Podcast on IG – uh, Cody and I both have our own Instagram accounts. Mine is sdpodphil. Cody, you got one? Yeah, you can follow me at Cody Zabub. Uh, send me a message. Give me some uh, ideas for an episode. I always enjoy that. Uh, the last thing we need you guys to do is to log on to iTunes, leave the show a five-star review. doesn't really matter what you say, just as long as it's a five-star review. It's greatly appreciated. Now, if you are a Spotify user, you can also 
do the same and leave the show a five-star rating on Spotify, which we greatly appreciate everyone who's taken the time to do that. Uh, Phil, thank you so much for taking us down a little bit of uh, sports nostalgia for a very big event that transpired. I think you did an excellent job, and we will see you guys next week. Thanks, guys.